Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Buckle up, podcast listeners. We have a great one for you today. So great that Debbie Cox Bolton and I teamed up because we both wanted to talk to our guest, Olivia Giuliano. Olivia started secretly posting her political thoughts as a 17-year-old in a conservative Texas household. Her followers quickly grew, but so did the haters, including Congressman Matt Gates, who attacked her personally. Olivia used the moment to double down on her positions and raise $2 million for abortion access. Since then, her following has continued to grow, and now she's being courted by the White House, state, and local candidates to understand how to connect with young voters. If you listen to this interview, you'll see why. She's wicked smart, brave, and right to the point. If you like this episode, do us a favor and share it. We want to inspire more young people to engage and save this country and world. Enjoy. Olivia Giuliano, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation, and this is a a fun one, as I mentioned, that Ryan and I are co-hosting today together, which we always love to do to get to hear from interesting and effective people around the country that are making a difference where they live. So we're so excited to have you. I enjoyed meeting you a a couple months back and really hearing your story about how you got into activism and the, the impact that you've had nationally, and it really is a voice of of your generation. And so we're really grateful for you to be here to tell that story again. And so to that point, I'd maybe just like to start with, you know, how did you get into this? How did politics find you? Yeah, you know, I grew up in a pretty politically engaged household. The only difference is I grew up in a very conservative household. And, you know, my dad, he's a John McCain Republican. And I can remember being in kindergarten watching the presidential debates between Obama and John McCain, and then being a little bit older in uh, elementary school, watching the debates with Obama and Mitt Romney, and then so on and so forth. So I was always really aware of what was going on in politics, but it, it wasn't really until I got into high school that I kind of started to take on these opinions of my own, and I joined debate. And I was a LD, a Lincoln Douglas debate kid. And so it kind of forced me to learn how to research both sides of any given argument. And up until this point, I had called myself a conservative because that's what I had been raised to believe. You know, I was a conservative Southern Baptist, you know, young woman. So these are the morals and the the principles that I was supposed to have. And so my uh, first major case in my Lincoln Douglas debate class was actually around abortion. And it really made me have to peel back a lot of the layers of information that I had been taught and realize that a lot of it wasn't true. And so that was kind of the first awakening moment of me kind of having different political beliefs and being involved. But it wasn't really until I was a junior in high school, I was on spring break, 
and the COVID lockdown started. I didn't go back to school. And so I was stuck in the middle of, you know, rural Texas, middle of nowhere. And it was just me and my dad. He had been laid off from work and I was home from school now. And I just kind of watched as the world was going through all these different major events. You know, we had this global pandemic going on. We had an extremely contentious presidential election coming up, one that I wouldn't even be old enough to vote in. But then also the resurgence of a huge part of the civil rights movement with the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. And I remember just thinking, this is wrong. These things that are going on are atrocious, but I was surrounded by people who thought that these things were not only okay, but that they were right, that these were the correct beliefs to have. I remember going to my dad and telling him, you know, I I wanted to go drive into Houston and I wanted to go march and protest because I thought that what was going on was wrong. And he said, if you go march, don't come home. And so I did what I think any other young person who was told something by their parents to do is I found a way to rebel in some way. And I started posting videos online in secret about politics and about being a Democrat and about wanting to help elect Joe Biden to be the next president. And I eventually told my dad and he was actually pretty supportive. And now he's incredibly supportive of everything I do. But ever since then, it's just kind of turned into something I never imagined it would be where, you know, being a 17 year old kid in the bedroom of my rural farmhouse to now living in Houston and having over a million followers collectively and, you know, having the opportunities and experiences I have. And that very short time span of about two and a half years go from being that kid making TikTok videos to meeting the president and having roundtables at the White House has just been quite the experience, uh, to say the least, in a very non-traditional way of coming into the fold of politics. That's so amazing. (laughs) I just have to say that's so amazing. It's an amazing story, an inspiring one as well. So I got to say, like you painted a rosy picture of, you know, finding your voice, finding your activism, and then growing your influence and, and shaping our political debate and culture. But it hasn't been an easy road. Can you describe some of the challenges that came with uh, getting that kind of profile? The biggest part of getting the profile, a lot of it is built off the back of Republicans, specifically elected officials, attacking and targeting me. And, you know, Matt Gates is the most prominent story. You know, Matt Gates attacked me. I raised over $2 million for abortion care by trolling him online. That's really the fullness of the story. But, you know, he wasn't the first one to throw shots at me. You know, I had publicly had a potential lawsuit with the Attorney General of Texas, Ken Paxton. I had had run-ins with Governor Glenn Youngkin in Virginia. Steve Scalise sent out some nasty tweets. It was always someone. I know the the governor of Texas, Abbott's people have been following me and watching me. And it was just kind of all these different events where it was very clear that they were intimidated by what was going on. And I kind of gained a following in that way. And obviously, just an onslaught of attack from people on the right. I talk about it so nonchalantly now because it doesn't really bother me. I'm just kind of over it. But, you know, I've gotten death threats since I was 17. You know, I've had people threaten to assault me since I was 17. And, you know, I'm uh, I'm about to turn 21. And 
for it to, to have been going on that long, it's just crazy to me. But I was kind of always under the impression that I would only be getting, you know, violent attacks or threats or condemnation from people on the far right. And that has not been my experience. I have also experienced a lot of really nasty attacks from people on the left as well, because I'm not the most outwardly progressive person. I'm not somebody who takes a a hard left stance on a lot of issues. It's just not who I am. It may have been who I was at one point, you know, of course I'm young, you know, I'm not having an identity crisis. I'm figuring out who I am. As I've kind of gotten older and, uh, I guess more seasoned in political discourse and policy, I've kind of taken a much more calm and pragmatic tone and approach to the way that I have a lot of these conversations. And that's kind of resulted in, you know, me being ostracized from a lot of people who are within my age group, but also a lot of people who I kind of came into this work with, who no longer agree with the stances and positions that I'm taking. So it's been quite interesting to become a polarizing figure on the left and on the right. Debbie and I both want to dive into this a lot of detail, but I guess, you know, I think most people would be hesitant about putting themselves out there. And then certainly if there was death threats and personal attacks and just all the things that you've had to deal with, what motivated you to keep going and stick with it and fight through it all? Honestly, it's talking with people on the ground. You know, it's kind of hard when, you know, you have people online telling you that you're an evil, bloodthirsty fascist, which is a tweet I literally read this morning. But, you know, I go to events, like I was at the Texas Capitol after Senate Bill 8, which was the civil bounty abortion law, went into effect. And I had a girl, she was like 13, Rob approached me just, tears in her eyes, you know, saying thank you for what you said and hugging me. Or I'll be out in public with my dad having lunch and I'll have people approach me and say, you know, thank you for what you do. And, you know, this past week, the Houston is in the middle of their mayoral election. And I've been out stumping for my preferred candidate, Sheila Jackson Lee. And I've been at the polls greeting people and talking to people and having people come up to you and talk about, you know, thank you for telling the truth about this election and, or thank you for advocating so strongly for a black woman when you're not part of this community. It really does mean a lot. And so having conversations like that in person have really always motivated me because, you know, online is one thing, but when people are so moved that they come talk to you in person or even the positive messages online, you know, there's been a lot of negativity, but There's also an overwhelming amount of positivity as well. It really motivates me to kind of keep going and having friends in the space as well. You know, I can't turn away from something where it's changed the trajectory of my life. I was never supposed to be in these spaces. You know, a working class kid from rural Texas shouldn't be in the positions that I'm in. And yet I am. And it's because I've persevered and I haven't been quiet when people would have preferred that I have. But I guess that's just kind of... The the person I am, I've never really been one to shy away from a fight or a disagreement. Being the youngest of four kids, I guess it makes sense. (laughs) I want to follow up on the thread about kind of the the disconnect, if you will, between the online world and the real world, if you say. Like, you know, you're talking about, you know, what you're hearing on the ground versus some of the vitriol that you're getting online. You know, I guess, how do you think about that? In particular, I feel like there's a perception that young people online, because of what's online, are 
one way in particular, you know, very far left or, you know, and when I've talked to you in the past and I know, you know, that you kind of said to me, I, I don't think that really represents young people across the country. So like, how do you think about kind of online world versus real world? Yeah, I mean, I think that social media is a lot like a megaphone. You know, I think if you're out there sharing messages and it's used to amplify what you're saying, you know, whoever's the loudest, their message is going to go the farthest. But there are a lot of people out there who just aren't super vocal on their opinions on the issues. And I think that's the reality for a lot of young people. Because even if you look at the rates, young people who are voting, it is still a significant disparity between Gen Z and millennials and Gen X and baby boomers. You know, older folks are still voting at significantly higher rates than younger people. And I think in part that's because the policy and messaging that's been used to attract young people is based off of a section of young people rather than different campaign strategies to all young people as a whole. You know, and this is something where I think it's been a problem, especially in terms of campaigning to marginalized communities, is, you know, not every Latino voter thinks the same. Not every woman voter thinks the same. Not every black voter thinks the same. It's the same of not every young voter thinks the same. You're going to meet some who their number one priority is going to be climate change. You're going to be some who it's going to be abortion. But I would like to make the argument that the overwhelming majority of young people, the number one issue that is either motivating them to go to the polls or preventing them from going to the polls is a concentrated message around the economy and about how we can financially empower young people. And I think that that's the biggest disconnect that we're seeing. And I think we need to do better in terms of messaging how young people can have a stake not only in the future of the workforce and in the future of setting themselves up for success, but also telling them what's already been done to give them a seat at that table that they might not just not yet know about. And so it's just, it's different, you know, monoliths and voting aren't a thing. Everyone has to be campaigned to in different ways and young people are no different. Can you talk a little bit in more detail about both the what of how you hope elected officials would say to young people about economic empowerment and also the how. Give us old fogies a roadmap here to understand. Yeah. You know, I've been screaming from the rooftops to anyone who will listen to me, whether it's a congressional campaign or, you know, the White House. We need a concentrated youth economic agenda. There's no reason why at this point that hasn't been something that's a pillar of democratic campaign, especially coming into an election cycle where the youth vote could be the difference in a lot of these key states and a lot of these key races. You know, when we think about, okay, well, how are we talking about the economy to young people? The only two things I can think of is student debt forgiveness and the minimum wage. The overwhelming majority of us are currently in college. That's great. You know, if we forgive student debt, you know, the Supreme Court's kind of held it up. But what are we doing to remedy the deeper illness That's causing that. Because if we just forgive student debt and we don't ban predatory lending practices or teach young people that there are other alternatives to going straight into university. I went to community college. I got Pell Grants because of the American Rescue Plan. I know a lot of young people who have foregone college to go to trade schools. There are other options out there. And there is this narrative of if you want to be a successful adult, you have to get the four-year degree from a good university and then you'll survive. And I think that that's the problem is, number one, not everyone needs to go to college. 
we need some people to be electricians and plumbers and line workers. And that's okay. And not any less dignified than going to work a nine to five office job. So I think teaching them what other options are out there, teaching young people that there's not one cookie cutter way to be financially successful in the long haul, talking about what policies you want to pass to remedy these kind of financial burdens that other generations are already dealing with because they weren't fixed by the time they got into early adulthood. And then also talking about not just the minimum wage, but other issues that are talked about to older adults, you know, kitchen table issues, how much your eggs cost, how much does bread cost? Those same things apply to young adults. You know, my tuition might be due a couple months from now, but I have to pay my rent tomorrow. So I need to know what you're going to do to make the cost of living where I live better, what you're going to do to make my taxes as a working class person go down, and what you're going to do to make sure that I am getting the fair share that I deserve as compared to other people who might be getting a lot bigger tax breaks than me. I think that that's the bottom line. Uh, It's not just young people are young people in college. It's young people are parents They're workers, they're students, they're people who are taking care of their parents or taking care of family members. The core root of all of the problems and messaging to young Americans is young people are just seen as a monolith. When in reality, they fit into every other traditional voter profile that already exists. So you can't just message them as, oh, you are a young person. Like if someone were to message to me, it wouldn't be, oh, you're just a young person. It's, oh, you're a young Latin woman who is openly queer living in a state like Texas. There are multiple identities there that have to be addressed when campaigning to me because not every single talking point and message you have to me is going to resonate just because I'm young. Because the issues that I'm facing at times can be a lot similar to the issues that my dad is facing at 60 years old. So I think that that's the biggest difference there is we're talked to like we're children, but we're expected to vote like adults. I love that line actually a lot. I might be ask a follow-up kind of related to that. You mentioned, and I, I saw you on social media talking about the fact that the ARPA uh, was going to help you finish college, first in your family. Amazing. Congratulations. You know, we're heading into the election year, you know, on the top of the ticket. And it feels to me like there's a real lack of understanding of some of the things that the administration has done. I saw a poll, I think, after the bipartisan infrastructure law was passed, like only 24% of Americans (laughs) knew that it even passed. So it's a problem, not just with young people's problem with everyone. But I'm just curious, like, kind of digging deeper in what you said, or continuing the conversation, I guess, you know, how do we reach people? How do Democrats talk about not only rightfully, as you're saying, what they're going to do, but also what they've done, and even just to, you know, what, what some of those accomplishments, how do we get that message out? Keep it simple, stupid. I think that the Democratic Party can be its own downfall in the way of we talk to people and expect them to come to our level in terms of understanding the logistics and the more complex legislative issues that go behind a lot of these things. Like I could sit here and say, oh, you know, the American Rescue Plan, Omnibus Bill, expanded Pell Grants, which then went down into junior colleges and university and allowed people to get tuition assistance. I could say that, or I could say... Democrats gave working class students money to pay their for their college. It's so much simpler and it's so much easier and understandable. And I think that's why 
when it comes to the narrative war, a lot of times Democrats lose because we don't talk to normal people in a normal way. There's a lot of fluff around it. There's a lot of, well, see how smart I sound. You must trust me because I sound smarter than my opponent. That doesn't always work. Case in point, 2016. Like There are a lot of people who didn't vote for Hillary Clinton because they didn't think she was a good enough candidate, which is total crap in my opinion. But also it was Donald Trump sounded like a, a working class scorned guy. He was just some dude. And I think that someone who's been really successful in kind of proving this hypothesis is John Fetterman. You know, John Fetterman was like, look, I'm just a guy. I care about these issues. I want to do these things. And I hate this traditional status quo. And it's been extremely effective for him. And I think people respond a lot better to that. And people understand it a lot easier. People don't like voting for people who they can't place. They don't like voting for people who they can't understand. And I think that the more we have people talking about normal working class people issues in a very normal and understandable way, the more ground that we have that we can make up in the long haul. You mentioned you're a proud Texan and Texas is a very young state. It's also at a growing state. It's also a very conservative state. Can you give us a little lay of the land from the ground of where you think Texas is headed? Oh, yeah. I'm, I said this the other day, and I, I mean this from the bottom of my heart. By 2030, every statewide office in Texas will be blue. That's just the reality. And that's why you see right now the Texas GOP is actually in the middle of a civil war. They're all fighting with each other. The governor, the lieutenant governor, and the speaker of the House are constantly disagreeing. And actually, because of the impeachment of the attorney general, now they're actually having a primary war where they're primarying a bunch of sitting incumbents in a presidential year because they're not conservative enough. You know, Texas has been controlled by conservatives for 30 years now at this point. Every state office is held by a Republican, and yet they still can't govern because they can't govern. And I think that that's starting to spill out more and more. And Texas is a young state, and Texas does have a lot of voters, but 9 million of them didn't vote in the 2022 election. And people will ask me, well, you know, why is that? Why aren't people getting out and voting? And it's number one, I think that Texas would be in a lot worse position if Beto O'Rourke hadn't been at the top of the ballot. Because the reality there is Greg Abbott had to spend $100 million to keep his seat. And that's money that could have been invested in the Harris County judge election or the state house seats that wasn't. But also, I think people want to see candidates that look like them at the top of the ballot. And Texas is a majority minority state now, one of the largest Latino populations in the country, one of the largest black populations in the country. And I think that that is already being translated by the two primary Senate candidates you have on the Democratic side for next cycle. You have Roland Gutierrez and Colin Allred. But I think the main reason why we aren't seeing people come out is we do a really great job at registering people to vote. Horrible job at educating them on how to be voters. And that goes for even me. I'm a registered voter. I vote in every election that I'm able to. And in the last school board election I had, it took me 30 minutes on election day to figure out where to vote. And I do this for a living. So if it's taking me that long, what kind of a burden is that on the mom who has 30 minutes before she's got to pick her kids up from soccer practice to go vote in this election that's going to affect her kids? It's a burden. And until we figure out 
or until we start implementing ways to actually educate people on how to become active voters, we're just going to keep seeing repeats of this over and over again. And so as far as Texas being a a young state and uh, a changing demographic state, Texas is going to go blue. Now, whether that happens next year, I don't know. Democrats in special elections have been overperforming by 12 points since Roe was overturned. But what I do know is that the 2024 election cycle in Texas is not actually about 2024. It's about 2030. And it's about setting the groundwork there. And I think that the election here next year is going to be down to five points like it was in 2020. And if this was a congressional election, the entire country would be calling it one of the most hotly contested swing elections in the entire House. But because it's Texas, a lot of people think, oh, well, there's no hope for it there. And I think that the outcomes we're going to see, whether it's Ted Cruz going back to Washington or whether it's Ted Cruz not going back to Washington, the numbers that is going to come out of Texas next year is going to continue to change the national narrative about the state. And I think Democrats really need to start making investments here like they did in Georgia, because if they're able to take Texas in a presidential year, all bets are off. That's the path to victory continuously. And we're going to get there eventually. So much hope there. I love it. I want to stay on that theme for a second because I heard you talk about Texas also being the voter suppression state. So as we look at Texas changing demographics and what that might portend for 2030s you're talking about, like, are you worried about kind of rule changing, you know, that the powers that be finding other ways uh, than letting, you know, people actually vote and get what you want, right? What, what's happening and what do you think is going to happen? The Texas Republicans can insulate themselves into their seats by gerrymandering. But I heard someone say the other day, but they can't insulate themselves from the consequences of their actions. And where I say from that is, you know, if they insulate it to where they can keep some of these down ballot seats, we know they're going to do, you know, that's what they do. I think eventually Texas is going to become too large and too diverse for them to be able to suppress people from voting at the rates that they're going to. Even in 2022, they passed these voter suppression laws. And I think the the biggest indicator I've been using is the Harris County judge election from 2022. Lena Hidalgo was the incumbent who nobody thought she was going to win her first election. She won in 2018. No one thought she was going to win. She ended up winning and she had an opponent in Alex Mueller. Alex Mueller had the support of the national GOP, the state GOP, top funders in the state, and she outraised Lena four to one and spent almost every dollar she had, and she lost by 3%. It's going to be close. But if you look at that and you see the margins and the energy and the effort they spent on the largest, bluest county in the state to lose, that was devastating for them because that was their biggest project of the year. And now... I think they're going to be so distracted with themselves and this kind of civil war that they've got going on, which I called it trickle down dysfunction because we saw, you know, Kevin McCarthy and, you know, what's going on with Mike Johnson and all this is kind of trickle down to Texas. Now they're going to be so consumed with their own egos and their own party problems. And they have this faux sense of security from, Oh, well, we've held Texas for 30 years that I think that they're going to, delude themselves into not seeing the writing on the wall, which is that Texas is not only going to flip, 
but it's going to flip seat by seat, even in small elections. And that's already starting to happen. We've already taken a couple House seats and staved off the so-called red wave that was supposed to happen last year, even though Abbott won by 10 points. It's inevitable is what it is, even if they do continue to you know, pass voter suppression laws. I like it. I like hearing that. It warms my heart that you brought up mayoral election and a Texas judge election. Can you talk a little bit about how to engage young people, not just on national issues, on issues of choice and guns and other things, but in local elections, what that means for young people who are looking to make a difference in, the, in their communities and in politics? I'm not going to sit here and say that I think a uh, 100,000 young Houstonians are going to turn out for this mayoral election. I think we're a couple cycles off from that. We'll get there one day. But for right now, I don't think that that's going to be the case just yet. But I look at myself and other young people who I do see in this space, and it's understanding that the most change you're going to see is going to be on a local level. These are the politicians that you have the most access to, who have the ability to decide where federal funding goes in your community. Here in Houston, I kind of look at it. I'm like, okay, well, what are the issues locally that bother me? I wish we had better public transportation. I wish that our streets were better. That's the biggest thing is young people drive too. You know, I drive through Montrose. I can feel the potholes. Like I know that we need some money here to fix these streets or, or talking about colleges and, you know, investments in colleges. And I think that The biggest way that we can get young people to understand and be involved in these local elections is on the one hand, the proximity to these elected officials. You are a lot more likely to be able to talk to your city council members and your mayor than you are to talk to the president of the United States. Okay, that's just the the bottom line. We all know this. The proximity and being able to have a say, being able to go to city hall meetings, being able to make public comments, but also understanding that if... We have Joe Biden in the White House, but we don't have governors in the governor's mansion and state legislators that are going to take that federal money and implement it in a way that betters our communities. Then all these other places are reaping the benefits of our votes, but us. We're not reaping those benefits. And, you know, I live in Houston, so I have the privilege of being like, I live in Harris County, so I know that. This bill that Joe Biden passed into law, I know Lena Hidalgo is going to find a way to spend that money on some good stuff. But, you know, my my family who might live in a more conservative county in Texas, they still don't have broadband internet. Their county judge isn't really doing anything to help them get that federal money. So I think it's understanding how the, the branches of governments work together, but also understanding how you will physically be able to see the difference in your community if you elect good local leaders to represent you. I know you've talked a lot about this in various ways, but I'm like to put like a super fine point on it. Like what's your single message to national Democrats heading into 2024 for them to both turn out and engage and win the votes of, uh, of young people? Number one, economy, economy. I think number one, finding ways to message the economy and finances to young people. Cause you know, whether you're young or old, I tell people this, and some people don't like to hear it. People are not voting based off how they feel. They're voting based off their financials. That's the bottom line. Is It's going to be how are people standing in this current economy. Number two is I don't need to hear Democrats tell me how much young people love them. I need to hear young people who have been selected as surrogates 
telling people how much they love Democrats. Stop speaking for young people and let them speak for themselves. Because that's another one of the reasons why, you know, Gen Z, they're not going to traditional media. They're not watching MSNBC to get their news. They're coming to people like me. They want to hear from their peers what's going on. And number three is you got to treat young voters just like you would treat any other voter. You're not entitled to their vote. You're going to have to work for it in the same way that you have to work for other people's votes. And understanding that they can make the difference if you treat them like they can make the difference. Stop telling us young people are going to save the world and treating us like children when you expect us to act like adults and vote like adults. If you want us to be adults, treat us like adults. Talk to us like adults. Uh, And look at the polling to reflect what young people have to say in terms of, well, who is the poll talking to? If your poll is about predominantly young white women, well, we know what predominantly young white women care about when it comes to elections. What about the tens of millions of young black and brown people who aren't voting because you're not campaigning to them? That's going to make up the difference. That could have made up the difference in Texas, but they weren't talked to. And so until we make up that disparity, we're just going to have to keep competing for the same sliver of hyper-aware, hyper-informed young people who have been involved in politics, many of which are on the far left, and competing for those young votes, all the other young votes that are out there on the table too. Because they don't have a voice in this, and they should. And that's kind of where I hope to make up the difference in terms of speaking for myself as well, is young people aren't a monolith, and oftentimes the loudest voices aren't reflective of everyone who's out there. So I got to ask, and our last question here, that's all good advice, and I recognize you're really busy. Any chance you'll be asking for people's votes uh, in the near future? Is there an office you got your eye on? <laughs> I can't tell you how often I get asked this question. I get asked all the time. I will say, you know, I'm going to finish school first. I got, I got about two years left. I'm going to finish school first. But after that, I can tell you one place you will not see me running to go, and that's Washington, D.C. It's not for me. I will gladly let other people do that. If I were ever going to run for office, it would either be somewhere in Houston for a local government or for a state house seat or state senate seat. I, Texas is my home. That's all I care about. I'll tell anyone who will listen. I don't know what the future has in store for me, but I know it's somewhere in Texas because this is truly the one place that I, I so deeply, deeply care about. I'll do anything I can to make it into the place that my great-grandparents thought it was when they immigrated here 100 years ago. So that's the kind of political answer, which is, I can't really tell you my plans, but... Yeah, that's a good candidate answer, I'm just saying. He's got it it down already. (laughs) It's almost almost like I do this for a living. (laughs) Wow, Olivia, we can't thank you enough for being with us. This was such amazing pearls of wisdom uh, in there, and... You know, we're so excited to continue this conversation at our conference coming up with you. And and just uh, thank you for all you're doing out there. I know if you ever do choose to run that you will uh, have a national fan base in addition to Texas. But it doesn't matter whether you do or not because you're already making a huge impact. So thank you for all you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We'll see you soon. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.